This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. Uh, And when you get a smile out of the guests from that intro, you know it's going to be a good episode. That's the rule around here. And today, Good Faith Fam, it's actually happening. Uh, The one guest you've all been waiting for, he's formerly a writer for National (laughs) Review, The Atlantic, senior editor at The Dispatch, and he's Currently, as of uh, just like a month and a half ago, an opinion columnist for the New York Times, you can officially rename this podcast the Norman Conquest. This is going to be a French takeover. Nailed it. We- <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We have David French with us, and we're going to talk about faith and political philosophy, faith and public policy, faith pop culture, so much more. But first, uh, let's set this thing up. Okay. So in our latest read-through of the book of Exodus, uh, we're now up to Exodus 21, which for those of you following along at home is officially the point where the fun is over. The exciting stories are over, at least for now, and it's time for some rules and regs. Uh, in the immortal words of the real world, this is where the Bible stops being polite and starts getting real. Uh, now, <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. Wake me when it's over. But for real, this is actually one of my favorite stretches of the Bible because there's so much richness of meaning waiting for us just beneath the surface. And one of my favorite examples comes right in the beginning of this part of Exodus. So just at the outset of the 21st chapter, it talks about what happens when one Israelite indentures themselves as a servant to another Israelite. So the rule here is pretty strict. You can work for six years if you must, but that's it. And if you insist on working for any period longer than that, you technically may, but you need to go through what seems like a pretty weird ceremony. Basically, the servant, as the Bible tells it, stands next to a doorpost and gets a nail driven through his ear into the door. Okay, so what's this all about? First of all, why a doorpost? What does this have to do with anything? One of the best explanations to my mind was offered uh, just under 2,000 years ago by the famed Jewish sage Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Simeon. And he pointed out, it's such a sensitive literary read, he pointed out that the doorpost is significant because it reminds us of the last time in the book of Exodus that we've seen a doorpost. Where? Well, the camera pans out. We're in Egypt. God has already brought nine plagues to punish the recalcitrant, you know, tyrannical Pharaoh. And now God prepares to bring the final plague, the one that it's going to finally force Pharaoh to his knees, the plague of the firstborn. And so powerful was this punishment that God warned the Israelites to shelter themselves inside and place a sign upon the doorpost, blood from the lamb, to signal that those inside seek protection from the ravages of the upcoming plague. So in other words, the doorpost in Exodus, in the beginning of Exodus, symbolizes the mercy that God displayed for the Israelites, the relationship that they forged with the Almighty as a result. And in fact, the doorpost reminds them more specifically of the debt that these freed slaves owe to God, the fealty they owed him for liberating them from Egyptian bondage. And this brings us back to the slave in Exodus 21 who wishes to keep serving his master. He's required to have himself pierced against the doorpost because in seeing that blood upon the doorpost, his own blood, we wish to remind both him and all the rest of society that in fact, there's only one being who's worthy of human devotion. There's only one master who deserves, let alone is owed our service. And serving another human, a being of flesh and blood as a slave represents a betrayal of the responsibilities that we have towards God and towards ourselves. Now today, 
We're surrounded by illegitimate masters, each one calling us into its service. You can become a slave to a political ideology, to a political party, to governmental or institutional power, to one side or another in the like forever culture war. And much like the biblical slave, sometimes we feel that it's easier to stay enslaved, right? Because at least it's familiar. It's a thing to care about in a world where the alternative so often seems just like apathy. But it's at that moment that we're called to remember that, in fact, no human is fit to serve as a master to any other. The only being worth serving is God. No short-term political victory, no momentary cultural power is worth surrendering our principles. And while that's often a tough pill to swallow, especially when everyone feels like their opponents aren't willing to play fair as well, it's just as often the bitterest of pills that do the most good for us in the long term. So what does it look like to stick to your principles in 2023? What does it look like to make an effort to see through all the man-made ideologies that vie for our attention and attempt to live by godly principles? So to unpack all of this, I brought on someone whom I deeply, deeply admire, who's been doing this at the highest level for years. He's the new, the newest, I think, opinion columnist for the New York Times. He's the man, the myth, the legend, David French. David, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. I'm, I was circling this on my calendar and until we had a mishap at our house and had to postpone <laughs> it. And so I'm so glad that we're finally together here. Oh, my God. I am thrilled and honored. So I, I actually want to begin by talking about what the Hidden Tribes of America Survey Project has called the exhausted majority, which you've written about. Right. We have what amounts to something like two thirds of Americans by the numbers, a substantial majority, who are just tired. They're fed up with polarization. They feel like they're totally forgotten by the dominant discourse in our politics. And in terms of their views, they're not necessarily what you'd call like centrists. They have views ranging all over the spectrum, uh, though they are more likely to believe that they can find common ground with those whom they disagree. But the scary thing, at least to me, is that what most draws these people together is that they're either tired of our politics or they're bored with it. Right. The, right. Now, this demographic could be a force for positive change. But I think it's just as likely they're a sign that things are unlikely to get better, like all things being equal. Because if you read, you know, your fellow Times columnist, Ross Douthat, uh, or economist Tyler Cowen, you'll see lots of signs of complacency in American cultural, commercial life, not just in our politics. So, you know, startup creation has slowed down. Our movies are all either superheroes, sequels, or remakes. People are less likely to move than they used to be. So you start to worry, are we, like, in the decline of Rome phase of our history, right? Tocqueville may be the greatest interpreter of the American experiment ever, worried a great deal about American dynamism, just, you know, like running out of gas. Now, I... I'm an optimist by nature, and I actually really do believe that America's best days might just be ahead of her. But there seems to be little question that America needs some source of renewal. So where does that source of renewal come from in a fractured society like the one we inhabit? That is a great question. And, and let me really put a, a pin on something you said about this exhausted majority. So on the one hand, you think if two thirds of America has a similar impulse why does our politics, why is our political culture the opposite of the impulse of two thirds of America? And there's the key word in there is exhausted in majority. So if you have an empowered majority, they can make change. If it's an exhausted majority, they concede the field. And you know, the, the image I've used in the past is if you've seen that Homer Simpson GIF where he's retreating into the shrubbery. Right. Right eyes wide, like, I don't want any piece of this. And he just retreats into the shrubbery. So that is the way the exhausted majority has been acting for years now is they've got wide eyes 
and they're just like, I don't want a piece of this nonsense and this nastiness, and they they pull back. The other thing that makes it difficult, and they're pulling back for a lot of good reasons. I mean, politics is really toxic, and if you stick your neck out, it will get you, you'll get attacked. And so there are a lot of reasons why people pull back. And then one of the big reasons is there's no natural political constituency here because as the more in common people found out, you've got exhausted majority folks on the right, exhausted majority on the left, exhausted majority folks in the middle. But what's their political program? If you have people, it's very hard to unite as a movement because you've got people with different policy views. They may have very common views about how they hate the current political culture, but a politician's gonna might run and say, I'm gonna change the political culture and I'm going to do A, B, C, and D policy-wise. And then as soon as he gets to A, B, C, and D, the coalition falls apart <laughs> because they're like, yay, unite the culture, but not that way. And it all falls apart. And so that's the challenge that we have is that people are exhausted and they're not united ideologically. They're united dispositionally. And it's hard to form a political movement like that. But there are signs of hope on both the right and the left. So we have seen, for example, ordinary, average, everyday, progressive San Francisco citizens rallying to oust some of the more radical members of the school board or the district attorney who was quite radical. We have seen a small but very significant percentage of Republicans say, hey, we're not going to elect, you know, sort of election deniers. And so in both of those circumstances, you have a significant enough group within each ideological side of America sort of checking their own side and saying, uh, I'm with you, but I'm not that with you. <laughs> I'm not that far. And I think that that's healthy. But then what ends up happening is after Homer Simpson comes out and he votes, Homer goes right back into the bushes. <laughs> and the people who are engaged day after day after day, minute after minute, hour after hour, often tend to be the most radicalized subset of Americans. And that's what that's I just described Twitter. <laughs> right. Well, that actually <laughs> that actually brings me to my next point, which is I, I raised this point in an episode a few months ago with Ethan Strauss, who's my favorite sports writer. And I thought about it again because Noah Smith, The Economist, was posting about a similar idea on Twitter the other day. So I feel like there's something important in the fact that the dominant metaphor for bad faith arguing on Twitter comes from basketball, right? Like dunking on people. And like anyone yes, who's watched right. basketball even a little bit knows there's nothing more satisfying than a poster dunk, right? I mean, my kids watch dunk highlights on YouTube every single night or in the morning before they go to school. Like what makes a dunk so satisfying is precisely that it's so disrespectful. Like it has nothing to do with winning or improving your odds of winning because it's the same two points as a dorky yeah. Kareem Skyhook, right? So like when we talk about how our politics has become so unserious and it has, I mean, nowadays it's all just like owning the libs or owning the cons or whatever. But I feel like it's not so much that politics has become unserious as that it's become more like sports. and. This may also be why the exhausted majority seems exhausted. It may not be that they're tired per se. It's just that they feel like sports fans, right? Like as a sports fan, I care deeply about the Knicks, but I know that nothing I do will impact how the Knicks are run, right? Because uh, it's all James Dolan all the way down. So are these maybe the consequences of importing that spectator sports aesthetic into politics? And I guess my question is, why did this happen and how do we fix that? 
Yeah, that's a, again, that's a really, that's a really good question. And there's actually more in data from the more in common survey that really underlines that point. And that is, if you look at the most engaged segments, the, the, what they call the wings, you know, the progressive activists on the left, the devoted conservatives on the right. And what you find is that these people are disproportionately likely to view politics as a hobby. And so this is their thing. Like, yeah, I wish they were more sports fans, right? I wish. Right. I would say this is the sportification of politics. Right, exactly. So it's it's what they do, not just sort of as a calling in the sense of I want to make my community better, which that's healthy if you're engaging locally. I and mean, now there are toxic ways to engage locally, but as a general matter, you know, getting up off of the couch and getting involved is a much more healthy way of interacting with your community than staying on your couch and typing out a particularly nasty tweet. But the the devoted wings are much more likely to view politics as a hobby. And that's why I've often described a lot of the 24 seven news business as infotainment, because it's not just, you know, when I was growing up, you would sit down and it was younger at 6.30 PM was when ABC World News Tonight would come on and that was our that was our our dose of the news for the day. And it was not entertainment. It was information. And then the rest of the evening moved on to entertainment if you're going to be watching television. Well, now you never have to turn off anything. And so I don't know if you know folks like this. I know a bunch of folks like this, that they walk in from work, and especially if they're of a certain age, and they flip on cable news and they don't turn it off. We always joke in our house, like there's a, there's a generation that has a problem with screen time. It's not our kids. <laughs> yes, that is so true. And so that's politics as entertainment. It's in lieu of entertainment. And so, but people still want to be entertained. So it's politics as entertainment, but it's a kind of entertainment that gets you much more angry than say the superhero movies that Ross, my colleague Ross is tired of. Uh, although there are some super fans and superhero movies who get very agitated, but as a general rule, you know, you're watching that and it is stoking anger in you. And then you often get angry that other people aren't as angry as you. And so you have another part of the world that is more living what you might call a normal life. They're taking their kids to soccer practice. They're volunteering here or there, they're doing, you know, maybe they're streaming British crime dramas instead of late night cable news. And then their friends or family members are like, what do you think about? And then it's the outrage du jour. And if you're not engaged in it, if you're not thinking about it, then it's often you're part of the problem. You know, you're your problem. And now let me tell you what you need to think. And it creates I would say in the last eight years or so, I have never had so many people come up to me and describe family tension around politics in the way they have in the last eight years or so. And this is a lot of that dynamic. Speaking of, one of the most important ideas that the Hebrew Bible or what Christians would call the Old Testament introduced to humanity is the concept of eschatology, right? So prior civilizations and in many cultures, even long after, understood time to be cyclical, right? Seasons come and seasons go. The Nile or the Euphrates would flood on a, you know, pretty predictable timetable. And you could predict the lunar cycle or the position of the sun. You know, you could kind of map out as the Babylonians did the calendar for the year. And any changes to the normal cycle of things was just similarly understood, not as a sign of fundamental change, but just as like the gods fighting with one another. 
then along comes the Bible and it introduces the idea of linear time, right? History becomes an arena of change. The future is now open. And most importantly, through history, we can help bring about the kind of radical transformation of the world, right? What the Hebrew prophets called redemption or salvation. And this idea was super crucial, right? The Bible taught the ancient world that tyranny is fleeting. Things can change. Slaves can break their chains. People and societies can become better versions of themselves. And it still teaches us these ideas today. And in fact, you can probably explain a lot of the American spirit in particular. And certainly America's like political philosophical ideas as products of its openness to and grounding in the eschatological ideas of the Hebrew Bible, right? We're open to radical positive change. That's a great thing. Now, the flip side of this, you know, biblical openness to positive fundamental change is that it also holds open the possibility of catastrophic change, right? Like if the future is wide open rather than cyclical, like the ancient pagans thought, and who's to say the future holds only good things for us? Maybe it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. So to put it in biblical terms, the Bible also invented apocalypticism, right? So what role does the apocalyptic impulse play in American culture, particularly these days, in American Christianity or in society as a whole? How does it affect our politics, apocalypticism? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it is a profound, it, it, it's profoundly impactful, ironically enough, in both secular and religious spaces. A hundred percent agree. Yes. <laughs> just in the same way that fundamentalism is profoundly impactful in both secular and religious spaces, once you understand sort of fundamentalism is less of a specific kind of theology, because there's fundamentalisms throughout world religions but more of a particular outlook and a particular mindset about the world. And so I think the apocalypticism and eschatology, you know, if you think about like um, the dialectical sort of approach to history of Marxism, that's an eschatology, right? There, That is history with a particular kind of direction towards an ultimate outcome, even though that's quite secular. Absolutely. If you're talking about some of the premillennialism of American Pentecostal Protestantism. Again, there is a definite direction to history that is going to culminate in certain specific events. And a lot of people then start to look for the signs of the times. Are we in that sort of apocalyptic phase? And so you'll look at, you know, uh, you, you'll seek out prophecies, you'll seek out, you know, scriptures that sort of confirm whether this is or this is not that kind of we are facing that kind of apocalyptic turn in world history. And so you have an awful lot of people, both in secular and religious spaces, saying history has a very has a very specific direction. It's heading to a very specific destination. And if you don't like that destination, you're trying to throw up every roadblock possible and you're using that sort of apocalyptic rhetoric to say, we have to stop this. This has to be stopped. So, And so it, it creates this sort of sense that you know, sometimes futility, like, well, you know, it's all heading in one direction, but I think more often extreme alarm. And that extreme alarm comes from the fact that an awful lot of people don't share the same eschatology. Right. And if you see someone heading, moving in the direction that they think history is pulling them towards through sort of primal, either theological or secular forces, and you're not on board with that, okay, that's going to create an enormous sense of alarm and and conversely and vice and vice versa and then at the same time 
if you are thinking history is moving in this particular direction, you're going to be particularly angry at those who are sort of standing in the way. It just all raises the stakes a lot more where they might otherwise be, if not for that sort of eschatological and ultimately apocalyptic view. So here's, I guess I could say it's a concern, but it's not so much a concern because it could be an opportunity as well. But, you know, there's kind of like this well-worn trope to say like, oh, everything's bigger in America. And like, yes, probably. (laughs) But I think the conceptual basis underpinning that kind of stereotype is to say that America is just like an extraordinarily biblically grounded nation. You know, even as parts of society kind of go into their kind of post- Protestantism or post-Christian phase. And so while other nations, particularly in Europe, can understand the ideas of like success and failure and incorporate those ideas into their politics and their culture, et cetera, success and failure are ultimately ideas that make sense like in cyclical societies, whether ancient pagans that believed in kind of just the regular, you know, the regularization of nature by the gods or kind of post-religious, post-pagan, scientific cultures today. But a biblical society has instead ideas that derive from linear time. It has redemption and it has apocalypse, which are much bigger than success and failure, respectively. So I guess my question is, you know, you see so many of the downsides of apocalypticism. I think Taylor Lorenz had a tweet the other day, which was like, it was, and it was, yeah. it was so absurd on its face, but it was like, it's like, this is the end, right? Late stage capitalism, all this stuff. Yeah. Right. It's like, people think that kids are upset because of their phones, but really it's because we're living in late stage capitalism and climate and mass and pandemic and whatever. I guess my question is, we all decry that kind of apocalypticism and yet Unless it's our apocalyptic, Of course, of course. Then it's, right. then it's just common sense, right? But, right. <laughs> but we decry that kind of apocalypticism. But then when I see some of the good, optimistic ideas that I enjoy, like I'll just give you a great, ex- at least what I think is a good example. Matt Iglesias has a book called One Billion Americans, and it's a really good right. book. Where he's like, we should, I like it. we yes. should just have a lot more kids, a lot more people in this country. It would be great for everybody. Um, and he gives all these great arguments in support of that. And- I look at a book like that. I read it cover to cover. I look at a book like that and I'm like, this is the kind of insane vision for America that only religion makes possible. (laughs) And only if you're thinking in terms of success and failure, kind of like pre-Christian or post-Christian notions of success and failure, I don't see a way to get to one billion Americans. If you're thinking in biblical terms of redemption and apocalypse, then I can see how you can get to one billion Americans. You need people who are willing to be a little bit crazy and wide-eyed. And so I guess my question is, can we even have the redemption? Can we have the promise of the American spirit, the American story? Can we get that without apocalypticism? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that I do think we can in this sense. And and this is when I when I read things like One Billion Americans, one of the things that always is in my mind is this sort of found there's these twin founding ideas, like deep, deep philosophical realities that upon which our our classical liberal structure depends. One is mankind has fallen. Okay, and that's the one we're used to hearing because checks, checks and balances, separation of powers, rule of law, all of these things, you know, Federalist 51, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. So we recognize that the founding, there's this great book um, called We the Fallen People about sort of the founding of the country and how how understanding that we're deeply flawed is really a big part of our founding, but there's another thing, and that is human beings are created in the image of God and possess inherent dignity and inherent worth. 
So you have on the one hand, look, we know that human beings are flawed, but we are created in the image of God. We have inherent dignity. We have inherent worth. And that sort of view of the inherent worth of the human person really is the kind of optimism, the kind of joy in life that I think is necessary for a kind of vision like one billion Americans. And that's not necessarily apocalyptic or even eschatological, but it's saying here is our core fundamental identity is we are in the image of God. And if we are in the image of God, then there is worth in our life and there are worth and there's worth in our life individually. There is worth in our lives together collectively. And I think that creates a sort of a sense of fellowship and of community and of life and of hope when you fully understand that. And, you know, uh, what was it? Was it Joshua, you know, saying, choose life. You know, like I, when I think of that phrase, choose life, I think of that, of course, in a, I, as a pro-life person, I think that in the sense of abortion, but I also just think of it as a, as an ethos, choose life that, and that's one thing that I loved about the Iglesias piece, 1 billion Americans, that's choosing a lot of life right, <laughs> right there, <laughs> choosing a lot of life. And so I do think that there is some eschatological or apocalyptic kinds of well, eschatological thinking in the sort of sense that there is a shore to which we are sailing. Right, right. But there is also a joy in the journey aspect that we often forget. And that's part of that choose life formulation. Because one of the things that you you learn from reading scripture is nobody knows when they're getting to that far shore. And so an awful lot of life is we don't, that's a big mystery. We don't, we don't know. We might know how the story ends, but we don't know when the story ends, under what conditions the story, there's so much we don't know. But we're also given an awful lot of guidance about how to conduct the journey and how there is joy in the journey. So I think that's a good point, a good way to transition to sort of a question about sort of the sources of renewal that we might use. So American political philosophy is rooted uh, historically, conceptually, intellectually in the Hebraic revolution of the Renaissance, right? So it's at this point that people are actually reading the Bible for the first time, right? Rather than sort of in kind of medieval Europe, you're reading, you know, common people are reading the Bible, they're encountering the Bible, they're exposed to it, but they're reading it in excerpts, in small digests, in commentaries, or hearing it from their priests. And during the Renaissance, and particularly in the wake of the Reformation, this is when people start to actually read the Bible and encounter the text itself as a whole for the first time. Right. And people first of all, start to think, hey, we should build a political philosophy on the basis of this. Like, this is a pretty good book. Um, right. And it's at that point that people, really all of the greatest minds in Europe, Hobbes, Harrington, John Milton, Hugo Grotius, really John Selden, all of the greats, start to realize that, hey, actually, you can build a political philosophy on the basis of the society that Moses attempts to create in the Mosaic books and, and, and so forth. And at that point, you start to get all of the great Republican theories that proliferate throughout the, the 17th century and end up deeply influencing the American founding in the 18th century. So Thomas Paine, 
uh, is sort of like famously accused by John Adams of like basically plagiarizing large stretches of common sense. The pamphlet that ignited the American Revolution from John Milton's Hebraic uh, Hebraic scholarship. And Thomas Paine, rather than denying the accusation, sort of gleefully admits like, yes, that's exactly what I did. And they're great arguments. And I'm glad I did it. And so my question is now, it strikes me that there is still not still so much that if, if anything, there is so much more that American political life has to learn from one of its great, from what it should recognize as one of its great founding texts, at least in kind of a moral, cultural, and institutional sense, uh, and that's the Bible. So as really one of the most prominent biblically literate and, and interested public intellectuals in the country, if you had had a text that you would recommend to political thinkers, not even like kind of as a religious reading practice, but if you're just like, you want to understand how or maybe in what direction America should move forward, how we renew American political philosophical vitality, what would you recommend? Oh boy, that's a really great question. (laughs) This is why we have David French on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I honestly, I, I'm not thinking of books, but I'm sure. thinking of specific, let me share th- three specific shorter texts. So here's one, the most famous of the founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, okay? But why? Because it states the mission statement of American government better than any single document. I look at a the Declaration of Independence as imagine like your corporate mission statement right. and the Constitution is like your bylaws. Like it's putting the the mission statement into practice. And the specific parts of it are, you know, we're endowed by our creator with unalienable rights among this life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then it goes on to say how governments are instituted amongst men to protect liberty. That's not the sole reason for government, but a because liberty does not come from government. It's rec it comes from your identity as a human being and governments recognize that and protect it is a tremendous statement of philosophical profound meaning, but it also depends on something else. And that gets me to my next text, which is John Adams letter to Massachusetts militia. Oh, great. So this is right after the constitution is ratified. And what John Adams says when he writes this is that, look, there's this famous line in there that's somewhat abused in public conversation that our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. If that's all you take from the letter, you, you're not reading the letter. You got to read the whole letter because essentially what it's saying is that if the people are full of vice, this, this constitution just won't work. That, and what it does is it basically says, look, we're, why are we free? We are not free to do whatever we want. That is not the purpose of our liberty. Our purpose of our liberty is not self-indulgence. What essentially he's saying is that we are free to pursue virtue. Now we're free, so that means we can choose not to pursue virtue. So that, you know, liberty is not, it's not freedom if you're only free to pursue virtue. But what is the purpose of our freedom? It is not self-indulgence. We have moral obligations to each other. And so it's sort of the way I look at it, it creates a social compact. On the one hand, the government says to the citizen, my responsibility as the government is to defend your liberty. The citizen then says to each other and back to the government, our responsibility as citizens is to exercise our liberty for a virtuous purpose. And so what you, when you saw Tocqueville talking about sort of the best of America, 
he referred to how Americans just form associations. Like if we want a hospital, we form an association to create a hospital. If we need, and he just, you know, goes down all of these things, schools, hospitals, all of these things that are virtuous exercises of liberty. And that's how it's supposed to work. Then that brings us to number three. Number three is the most eloquent uh, statement in support of free speech in the whole history of the United States. And it is Frederick Douglass, 1860, a plea for free speech in Boston. And so what this did, and, and the reason why I single it out, free speech is, you know, in the First Amendment, the first uh, part of the Bill of Rights, but it's also really indispensable to this entire American experiment. And what Frederick Douglass does so well is describe why the defense of that particular liberty is so fundamentally important. He calls free speech the great moral renovator of society and government. He calls free speech the dread of tyrants. There's just marvelous language in there. And honestly, if you're just a if you're a smart student and you sort of want to figure this system out, reading those three things are going to give you an interesting, very brief sort of moral grounding in the interlocking responsibilities of government and citizen, of citizens with each other, and also is going to give you a really profound insight as to why we protect liberty. The why was Thomas Jefferson so right to center liberty as the central aspect of the American state? That's what their Frederick Douglass helps you see. And so I think those three things together really do show that there is a intentionality to this American experiment that is where we create we have created a society of mutual interdependence far more than sort of the individualism of, say, the 21st century would would lead us to think. I want to get back to that individualism in a second, but first just to build off the, that, that answer, which is so profound. Friend of the pod, uh, David Perel, uh, who did a great episode with us, famously, uh, or not famously, but uh, as he himself will say, uh, not, not religious in any particular respect, has written several quite popular articles and, and has been active on Twitter, just making the case that it's it seems <laughs> it seems insane that the Bible would not be regularly taught in this country just as like a civic text. Right. It seems almost like incoherent and self-defeating. And moreover, Daniel Dreisbach in his in his book on the Bible and the American Founders has this wonderful study that he points to, uh, which is that if you tally up all of the political writings from the American founding era, and you, even if you discount sermons, which was a major popular and political genre itself, even if you discount sermons, by far the most quoted work amongst the founders is the book of Deuteronomy. So if you are recommending to the same audience that you just recommended those foundational American texts, and you have to say, hey, here's a biblical text that I think you should read to understand the American experience, the potential, so the mission of America, America's potential future. What's a biblical text you might point to? Okay, that's a really good one. Well, I mean, I will just tell you, um, I have to use this verse, but I mean, this book, because it has two verses in it that I talk about constantly in our uh, relationships with each other uh, as citizens and our relationship to the government. And that's the book of Micah. Love it. Because it has Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? It is to act justly. It is to love mercy. It is to walk humbly with the Lord your God, which is a wonderful explanation of the, these three interlocking non-optional obligations that we have. And, and why is that so profound? Because it 
that command, I think, hits each one of us in different ways because we have different strengths and weaknesses. There are some people who have no problem charging the barricades for justice, but have a lot of problem with kindness and humility, right? <laughs> and there's a lot of people who are totally, they understand mercy and they understand humility. They really look at the pursuit of justice as divisive. And, and what Micah does, the book of Micah does, it doesn't give you an option to sort of choose your virtue, right? It's all of the above. It's justice, it's mercy, it's humility. And it's a great shorthand guide for how we interact. And then Micah 4.4, which was, by the way, one of George Washington's favorite verses. It's almost 50 times appears in his correspondence. Uh, Micah 4.4, which is every man shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. So Daniel Dreisbach, in, in the episode that he did with us, actually pointed out that that was by far the most quoted biblical verse that Washington ever had in his, in his writings, which is fascinating. 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 And it's a beautiful vision of a pluralistic society. And remember when he used it most famously was to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island. Yes when he's telling a persecuted, a small persecuted religious minority, you have a home in this land, right? That, and what a beautiful way to say you have a home in this land uh, and how poetic and beautiful and, and biblical to say, you know, it's coming through Micah 4.4. And as a Christian, I'm gonna also point to different, I'm gonna point to different texts from the New Testament. And these are Paul's letters to the Corinthians. So first and second Corinthians. And why, why is it that I point to first and second Corinthians? It's because Paul is writing to a tiny Christian community that is persecuted at a level that we cannot comprehend in America today. Suffice it to say, it's not the war on Christmas, you know. <laughs> it's not the war on Christmas. Like it is, it is real deal persecution. But what does Paul spend most of his time talking about? He doesn't spend the time talking about owning the Romans. He's teaching this young Christian church what the faith is and what it means to live virtuously in this hostile culture. What does it mean? And, and so the Pauline epistles more broadly are really very focused on the righteousness of the church and the virtue of the church. You know, what are the fruit of the spirit? Kindness, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. And this is at a time when people are killing Christians. And there's that call towards kindness, peace, patience, gentleness. And it really does, I think it's incredibly important to remind Christian citizens of this country that you don't have to run the place to, before to exhibit virtue. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that actually our, our focus is less on is everyone sort of outside the church living in the right way? And it's more on, are we upholding God's commands inside the church? And I think it just really reframes the way we approach the culture. Good faith fam. So we're talking about the book of Exodus these days. And so obviously the Exodus from Egypt has been on my mind. And besides, anyone who knows me knows that my favorite holiday of the entire year is Passover, where you get to spend an entire week just combing through the Exodus narrative, its texts and its ideas over and over to your heart's content. And every year, I'm always on the hunt for new and fun educational or experiential tools to teach my kids about the story. And so that's why I want to talk to you about Seder Salt. 
Seder salt's a pyramid-shaped flake sea salt from the Mediterranean Sea that serves as a really cool visual for teaching kids about the Exodus, certainly if you've got young kids like I do. So whether you're at a Passover Seder, like I'll be, or just learning about the story together at a family night or in Sunday school, it's just a ton of fun to use Seder salt because at the very same time, you can create a delicious saltwater dip like you'd use at a Seder and create the visual of the Egyptian pyramids dissolving in the sea because they're pyramid shaped. So this then leads to questions and discussions that are at the heart of any study of the Hebrew Bible. And in my case, the absolute soul of the Passover Seder. Seder Salt is certified kosher for Passover. It's OUP, and you can get your own by visiting www.sedersalt.com. That's www.sedersalt.com. And while you're there, put in code GOODFAITH10, that's G-O-O-D-F-A-I-T-H-1-0, for a 10% discount off your purchase. And be sure to follow Seder Salt on Instagram for recipes, educational ideas, and even Lego giveaways. Just awesome stuff. And now, back to the show. America has this really strange uh, feature that, to the best of my knowledge, most other nations do not share. It might even be unique. And that is that you can actually become American, right? You can become part of the American story without actually having experienced any of it. So like in 1776, my ancestors, my ancestors in particular, were living in like the deep backwaters of Poland and no shaded Poland. A lot of amazing Jewish intellectual history there. But like on the eve of the Civil War, my great great grandfather was moving with his parents from Hungary to Jerusalem. And yet I feel very deeply and genuinely that the American founders, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, are part of my past and my family's story as well. So what is it about America that allows us to share these stories, even if we never experienced them ourselves? Because America ultimately, and a lot of people get angry when you say this, but at, at its core, America's identity rests on an, a series of ideas. It is not resting on an ethnicity. It's not rest, resting on a particular religious faith. It's not even resting as much on geographic space because the United States has not always been in the geographic space that it is right now, but it is resting on a set of ideas and propositions that are extraordinarily compelling in which anybody can buy into. And, you know, when I think of sort of the apex of that understanding during my lifetime was actually during the height of the Cold War. So I'm a Cold War kid. I'm older than you are. I remember it very well. And one of the interesting things, one of the things that I remember is that we would have athletes defect, you know, from the Soviet Union or Soviet Union or from Cuba or the Eastern Bloc and then become American citizens. And the extent to which we were like, that's our guy, that's <laughs> our girl. You know, like we had total pride in these people who grew up in foreign countries, but because they saw the competing ideas between the Soviet system and they wanted to be a part of that American idea, we were like, Welcome. <laughs> now, part of that was in your face, Soviets, right? But it was also speaking to something very real and true about the American experiment, which is because it rests in a series of propositions which any person can assent to, then it is a place that is inherently open, just inherently open for inclusion from others. And, and you know, that really does fit within religious traditions that talk about 
concepts like conversion or evangelism, proselytization. A person who is born a member of my church is no more of a member of a church than somebody who just showed up at Baptism Sunday six days ago. You know, there is an equality right there in that within the family that I think that America being based on a set of ideas and principles far more than any ethnicity or geography or religion allows us to incorporate people in that way. And, you know, one of the things that kind of is sad and distressing about the current moment is there are people who seem to want less of that. You know, they want, you know, the opposite of the 1 billion Americans. Let's, let's shut the gates. That's let's button up a little bit. And, and I think that that's really contrary to the notion of a nation as a set of ideas and propositions. I love that explanation. And it so resonates. And I actually wonder if maybe it comes from kind of America's biblical roots, right? So like one of the strangest ideas in the Bible is the notion on the one hand that history like really matters, right? So the God of the Bible is fundamentally different than the God of Greek philosophy in this respect. And that what makes God God is not the fact that he's all powerful and unchanging, even though he is those things, but rather what makes God God is that he's involved in history. He creates unique relationships with individuals and with nations, right? So for the Bible, history really matters, right? Like being freed from Egypt has practical implications for everyday life as far as the Bible's concerned. That's why you observe the Sabbath. That's why you treat your workers fairly. But at the same time, the Bible also clearly thinks that it's possible to join a people, even if you've never experienced that people's history, right? Like Ruth, can from the book of Ruth fame, can join the people of Israel, right? Conversion is a thing. And in doing this, you get to become part of the history of the people you're joining, right? Like just to take Ruth as an example, Ruth gets to claim the story of Abraham and Isaac or of Rachel and Leah. You know, if, if this were a why read the Bible in Hebrew thread, you could point to all of the literary allusions in that text to the stories of Genesis. She gets to claim these stories as her own, even though neither she nor her ancestors ever experienced it. So I wonder if there's something of that meaning, because for Americans, it's not that we treat our history, the, the experiences that we've had as a nation as irrelevant and all that matters is sort of like the equations of, you know, individual liberty equals this, you know, and consent of the governed equals that. We treat our histories as actually quite serious. Like it matters that so many people died at Gettysburg for, right. you know, or, or that and that Lincoln eventually articulated the notion that people died for an idea. It matters that Martin Luther King Jr., you know, suffered and died. And yet you can join that story somehow, right? That seems quite biblical to me, no? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's so many examples in scripture of this concept of joining. And often the concept of joining, you know, there's a, a leaving and a cleaving, so to speak. You know, you're leaving one tradition and coming into another tradition. And and that's all through, all through scripture, all through scripture. And we couldn't have been created any other way. <laughs> when you look at the, at the 13 colonies, it's very common to sort of go back and say, well, that wasn't very diverse because it was mainly a bunch of sort of white propertied Christian men, not exclusively, but mainly, who put together this society and they didn't understand diversity. But if you look at through another lens, if you look at going down the eastern seaboard of the United States, you had Puritans in Massachusetts, you had dissenters from Puritans in Rhode Island, you had Quakers in Pennsylvania, I wonder you had Catholics in Maryland, you had Episcopalians <laughs> Are now Anglicans in Virginia, you had criminals in Georgia where they remain. And so you had all of these, 
you had all of these different religious traditions that to our eyes now go, oh, that's just different flavors of Christianity, like Baskin Robbins, you know, 31 flavors. But no, a lot of those theological, different theological communities were among the major combatants of the wars of religion. Right, right. And so, you know, that had just devastated the European continent. It'd be like saying that like China and India and Russia are just all various land masses in Asia, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And so we had to figure out a way. What is it? What is it? Because the Puritans aren't going to defeat the Catholics and the Anglicans aren't, you know, the Catholics aren't going to defeat the Anglicans. And that's not the way we're going to be able to live. So how is it that we are going to be, there has to be an identity, not in replacement of your religious identity, but an identity other than the specific religious identity that you have. And this is the identity rooted in the this American idea. And that I think is very resonant with a scriptural story that talks about conversion, that talks about change, that can bring other people into a community and make them their own. So I've actually often wondered about this because I think there's, if I had to draw one, you know, more controversial conclusion from this, but one that I think is kind of the natural conclusion and the natural and, and virtuous conclusion of this sort of logic, it would be to talk about, let's say, reparations for slavery and Jim Crow, right? So Jeff Jacoby, friend of the, friend of the pod, just wrote a column about that, who I really who I really love, just wrote a column about this, kind of attacking or sort of attempting to counter the logic for reparations for slavery and Jim Crow. And I thought it was a very fair column. But if you think about this kind of bedrock American idea, which is that you can somehow join the American story, there's a mechanism by which you can be part of a story that you actually have no claim, that no other nation would allow you to claim. It seems to me that the, the mechanism by which you do that is you're part of the American experiment and you're part of the government that we have all come together to create that operates by consent of the governed and that sort of stands as the main character in a story that we all get to somehow claim. And so it seems to me that if someone like me, whose family had nothing to do with the American founding, whose biological and, and spiritual ancestors had nothing to do with the Civil War, had nothing to do with civil rights, if I want to be able to claim those things, if I want to be able to, to actually meaningfully observe President's Day or July 4th uh, or Thanksgiving or any of those other occasions. So it seems to me that the very same mechanism that allows me to do that should also morally compel me to say, yes, in some way, I, I do have a responsibility for the sins of slavery and Jim Crow, even though I personally and my family had nothing to do with them. Right. Does that strike you as sensible? I, absolutely. So. You know, you and I are in different positions when your ancestors were in Poland in 1776. Mine were in in New England. So I, <laughs> my ancestors were at Valley Forge. But then my story gets a less good because my ancestors were also at Shiloh and Vicksburg and Franklin and Nashville wearing gray. So my, wow. my ancestors were Confederates. And so so I had ancestors in the Continental Army and then ancestors in the Confederate Army, you know, less than a century later. So I've thought a lot about this concept. And of course, I do not have personal responsibility for what my ancestors did at Shiloh and Vicksburg. Like that is not my personal fault. But when I think of the United States as an institution, as, a, as, as an entity, then to what extent do we to this day have a responsibility, shared responsibility to address the consequences 
of past wrongful conduct. Now, that's not saying to say I have a responsibility to address consequences does not mean the consequences are my fault. But do I have a responsibility? And I, let me let me use a, a corporate analogy that I think people will help people make sense of this. Let's say you have a, a corporation and the corporation pollutes a lake and the corporate board finds out that the president and the COO knew it was happening and let it happen. And they fire the president and the COO, the people who are personally responsible and they hire a new president and a new COO. Now the new president is not responsible for what the company did under the old president, but he inherited the liability. In other words, he inherited the responsibility to clean up the lake. <laughs> right, right. Now, that does not mean that you would say, okay, well, then that means I'm in favor of reparations in the form of X amount of dollars, whatever. Right, right. Right. But what it does mean is it says, if, if this national institution created a massive injustice, then... It is the responsibility of this national institution to do what it can reasonably to address that injustice. And I think that's a way to kind of square the circle between those who say, well, wait a minute, I had nothing to do with slavery and Jim Crow. Why are you asking me to sacrifice in any way to deal with a problem I had nothing to do with creating? And you know, there, I would say no one's saying or no one should say you had anything to do with that but you're part of a national family, a national story, which the nation both committed and permitted tremendous harm. And the nation that committed and permitted that harm needs to do something about it. And I think that that's a, a way to think about it without making it so personal that, you know, because I'm white, therefore I am guilty. No, 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 no. But because you're an American, we have a shared responsibility for what America did, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it, it's sort of, you know, if I'm thinking about it kind of biblically, so the Bible has all sorts of happy occasions and memories that we're supposed to remember, heroic individuals and families that we're supposed to recall. And it also has traumatic events and records of sin and idol worship that we're also supposed to mourn and feel and feel guilt. And actually that the Bible expects the later people of Israel to bear some guilt over. Now, if you're Ruth and you're entering into sort of this covenanted people, so Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Rebecca, those, you know, those are now your ancestors. That's a pretty magical, wonderful thing. But guess who else is your ancestors? The people who built the golden calf, right? So, yeah. <laughs> those are also your ancestors. That's just, I think, I, I don't see how you could have one without the other. Right. In 2 Kings, Josiah, they discovered the book of the law, right? The, the lost book of the law. And they tore, Josiah tore his clothes and he wept. Why? Because he discovered, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. That in other words, the there was mourning connected to the discovery of what his fathers had done, which is a really fascinating concept, for example, in our current history wars. You know, how much of the negative should we teach of the past without neglecting the positive? How much of the positive should we teach without neglecting the negative? You teach as much as you can, both positive and negative. The fact that there was a Tulsa race riot in 1921 that was one of the most horrific events in American history doesn't mean that 
there weren't also amazing events like Chamberlain's charge at Little Round Top at Gettysburg or the, you know, storming the beaches in Normandy or. I actually walked down the aisle at my wedding to the theme from Gettysburg. That's a real story, folks. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's fantastic. Speaking of families and the mechanism of family, um, you had this r recent amazing column on men, respect and purpose, and the idea that that to the extent that there's a crisis that boys and, and men are experiencing a crisis, whether that crisis expresses itself in health, in depression, in opioid use, in violence, whatever it is, in the commercial sphere, what are the dimensions of that crisis? How do we solve it? And you were responding to this kind of provocative tweet by Matt Walsh. Uh, and the tweet was like, all a man wants is to come home from a, uh, from a long day at the office to, uh, the wording was like, to a grateful wife and children who are going to see him and cook dinner for him. That's all it takes to make a man happy. We're so simple. Just give us this. And that's all you need to make men work. And it was kind of a much discussed tweet. 18 million views. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You talked about, in your column responding to this, you talked about the importance of, of purpose, uh, serving others, not merely, not, not asking what can, my, what can my society do for me, right? And you pointed in particular to, to veterans groups. These are sort of, by all accounts, heroic men and respected men. And it's precisely these groups who see the urgency of moving beyond just respect. Like, it's not enough just to be respected. They need purpose. Now... I remember reading the column and thinking to myself, first of all, I loved the column. I thought it was wonderful. Oh, thank you. If I'm thinking, but then I started to think to myself, okay, so veterans groups are an example of communities that feel the urgency of this. But if I'm thinking of communities that actually have done this at scale, created just well-adjusted men who feel a sense of purpose, I mean, well-adjusted communities who actually feel a sense of purpose. So I started to think, and I don't mean this triumphalistically, but descriptively, right, I'm thinking of kind of my own Orthodox Jewish community from which I've emerged, which has, I think, been very successful in kind of building a, an identity rooted in purpose. Our attrition rates are really low. Our birth rates are really high. It struck me that the biggest thing missing from, and, and you know, if I thought to myself, what is it about that community? And by the way, not just my community. You could look at like, I don't know, communities of evangelists or the LDS church, like people who really are able to convince their members on a regular basis to sacrifice an enormous amount, go live in a remote place just to do something larger than yourself. What makes them able to do this? And it struck me that there's the, the biggest thing or the most conspicuous characters missing from Matt Walsh's tweet are grandparents, right? Because <laughs> it is it is the epitome of like modern brain rot to assume that the traditional home is one in which you have a husband, a wife, and kids, and nobody above 40, right? Like, at, at no point <laughs> right. in human history has that ever been the case. And I think what Matt Walsh is representing here, kind of like a faux traditionalism, but real traditionalism means you're living with your family and you're caring for others and you're kind of seeing the embodiment of purpose by seeing people older than you. So is... Is there something to, like when we think about men and how how much and to what degree they need respect or whether or not it's sufficient to have respect. So is it important to kind of reframe men from husbands and fathers into sons and grandsons? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I think that that's a really, I think that's super helpful. And as somebody who is living in a three generation house right now, because my uh, oldest daughter is married 
And between college and law school, she and her husband are living with us and and our grandbaby. And we're about to have another grandbaby next month. Mazel tov. <laughs> yeah. So it's fantastic. So we've got three generations. My parents are not far away. And so we always, and my wife's parents are not far away. We are always have four generations at our house. And it's wonderful. It's amazing. And I, I, you know, I, I think you raise a really good point because I've talked about purpose because a lot of people talk about things like masculine purpose in the sense of, are you working with your hands? Are you physically strong? Are you, you know, those kinds of things right. that are sort of traditional, which look, I'm, I'm very happy for men to be strong, to work with their hands, to show physical courage, to all of show all of these sort of traditional masculine virtues. But I think that when you're talking about how are we dealing with the trauma and the challenges of the current moment with men, it's much more about relationships than it is about professions. And that's where these, these key relationships, and I phrased it as fathers, husbands, friends. In other words, you know, not every man can have each one of those relationships, but only men can be husbands, only men can be fathers, and any man can have friends. And those relationships give us an enormous amount of purpose. But when you talk about it as sons and grandsons, that's putting, it's a, it's a flipping the relationship in a different direction, but it also is imbued with incredible purpose. So my purpose as a son in many ways is to first learn from, then continue to learn from, and then ultimately to care for my parents. And that provides purpose at every single stage of your life. Um, and then for that to be inherited and transmitted down to your children and your children's children. And then what's interesting is that I found that if you are functioning in the sort of in the offices of father or son or uh, husband or friend, the way in which you as a man manifest what it means to be a good father, husband, friend is often going to involve a lot of the traditional masculine virtues. Sometimes you're going to have to show a lot of courage. Sometimes you're going to have to have a lot of physical strength if you're going to be fully inhabiting these roles. Um, but the roles themselves are what really give you meaning and purpose more so than any given sort of masculine attribute, if that makes sense. I love that. And that's, that's, it's so missing from the discourse, that sense of that sense of being certainly not the first chapter, but not even the last chapter. You're a middle chapter in your story, in the story of your life. Like, that's so powerful. OK, last question, because I know we've kept we've kept you for so long and I'm so grateful for the time. So you are the now most prominent evangelical Protestant at the uh, uh, evangelical Christian at The New York Times. I think it's fair to say. And you may be, I could be wrong about this, but you may be the only uh, New York Times op-ed columnist with that particular background. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that you are. When you think about what it means to, to tell the story of American life or to talk about public policy or to ruminate upon trends in American culture from that particular background, I kind of think about probably probably the best column you've ever, at least my favorite column that you've ever written, which was, I think it was at the Dispatch. It was called Satanic Pregnancies Explained. Uh, <laughs> That's my favorite, one of my favorite things I've written. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. And it was back in 2020. <laughs> Basically, it was about Paula White, who's President Trump's spiritual advisor. She's like praying for satanic pregnancies to miscarry and making sure that all the forces that seek to harm the president are stopped. And you 
as odd and, and alien as that sounded to so many Americans. And also it sounded so weird to hear, you know, to see her somebody who is pro-life praying for a miscarriage. You were able to kind of. So it's crazy. Right. You were kind of able to explain the the world and cultural vocabulary and religious and spiritual vocabulary in which that makes total sense. And it was such a such a sensitively written and well done column. So as you kind of think about now the task of occupying one of the most prominent places in American public intellectual life, is there anything in the world of religion of uh, or maybe evangelical Christianity uh, or, or just American religious life at large at this juncture that you feel is either in need of explanation to a wider American public or at least that you think would benefit from something like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there's actually a few evangelicals now at the Times. For example, Tish Harrison Warren writes a Sunday newsletter. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I love Tish Harrison Warren. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Tish is great. And Esau McCauley. Um, is Esau McCauley evangelical? I don't know why I thought Esau McCauley was. He's at Wheaton, I believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're totally right about that. OK, well, I wa- <laughs> you're 100 percent right. I think it was David. <laughs> David said the other day, we've almost got enough to start a young life group. But uh, <laughs> it's uh I would say that's a question with a multifaceted answer. And so I feel like there's an explanatory purpose for some of what I do, which is embodied by that satanic pregnancies explained piece. And I feel like in some ways I'm bilingual, um, (laughs) culturally bilingual. So I, I have lived in very, very deep red parts of the country and I've lived in very, very deep blue parts of the country. I've been ensconced in evangelical institutions. I've been ensconced in some of the most secular, progressive institutions you can imagine. And I feel like I understand, not perfectly, but I feel like I understand both communities in a way that can allow me to explain one to the other and the other to the other. (laughs) And in a way that humanizes and in a way that people can understand that this sort of Manichaean world of they're absolute evil and we're completely good just misses the boat. And so there is a real way in which I think there are competing and And here's what's interesting, both parties, and this is something that really people lose sight of, both parties are completely dependent on their Bible-believing bases to hold national power. So for, you know that with the Republicans, with the white evangelical vote, which is foundational to Republican political strength. If you pulled white evangelicals out, Republican Party just collapses. Well, guess who goes to church every bit as much as white evangelicals and has a very similar theological outlook? Black Protestants. And so and they're over they're as democratic as white evangelicals are Republican. And so both parties really totally depend on this Bible believing base for their electoral success. And so another thing that I'm trying to do is sort of say, okay, if that's the case, if there are people who have shared belief in the Bible, and these are the people who are absolutely indispensable to both political parties, then why should our politics be so toxic? Why should, and so part of what I'm doing is trying to reconnect Christian political participation with the full counsel of scripture. And so, you know, going back to Micah 6, 8, you know, this notion of acting justly. Yes, absolutely. That's what we should be seeking in the political process while we love mercy and walk humbly. And does now, do those three virtues describe Christians in politics today? For some people, certainly. For a lot of people, not at all. And so I, I feel like I have a both an explanatory purpose, which is helping two sides of this American divide understand each other better, 
and then also a purpose to try to reconnect American politics to virtue and to character. And that those two things are really explain an awful lot of my writing. If you're going to go sort of and connect even even down to when I get wonky, like if I'm talking about specific policies, they're often going to I'm going to approach them by what virtues are they calling up? What virtues are they connecting us to? Amen. David, thank you so much for being here. This was just such a treat, such a privilege. We're really so grateful that you're here. Oh, this such a joy. And keep tweeting. And I say that to nobody <laughs> but you. That's the greatest you're, compliment you're the... I have ever received, literally ever. <laughs> <laughs> I have never said those words to any human being except for you. Keep, so. keep tweeting. I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Keep tweeting. <laughs> I gotta tell you, that's quite literally the best compliment I've ever received. Uh, but uh, in anyway, in all seriousness, I think something we should all keep doing is trying. Look, I know yelling and screaming is a lot of fun, and sometimes it's just really cathartic. But that's why it's so important to remember that what we're building in America is not just a social contract. It's not just another nation state. We're working, as David put it so poignantly, on an idea. And that idea is not only worth preserving, it's something the world desperately needs. We have a responsibility to the rest of humanity to show that it's possible to build a cross difference, to unite people of all sorts in common pursuit of virtue. And at its best, that's what this American experiment is all about. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been the best time. And while you're here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcast and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul